Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast. I am your host, Margot Catalona, and today I have the amazing Jacqueline Goldfinger here with me. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me on. Of course. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, You're such a well-known name in the Philly theater community. I think there's a lot of really great insight you can have here. Um, For everyone that might not know you, can you give a little bit of background about yourself and the work you do? Sure. So I'm primarily known as a playwright and dramaturg. Um, Although I also teach a lot. uh, Now I teach playwriting and dramaturgy. I've taught at Penn, I've taught at Temple and UArts. So I've taught all around, which is how a lot of younger (laughs) folks Um, and I've just begin, begun in the past couple of years writing librettos for operas, which has been oh. like a challenge um, and a lot of fun. Um, but for those of you who know me as a playwright, you've probably seen my work in any number of spaces around town, Azuka or Theater Exile or um, really all over the place. I've had readings. Mm-hmm. Of- <laughs> so if you're like, I think that name may sound familiar. Mm-hmm. We pro- you probably have seen my name at some local theater. But I <laughs> Great. love it. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, a lot of our um, people in EAM at Drexel are somehow affiliated to Azuka. So those of you that know Azuka, you've probably heard of Jackie. So Yes, I love yeah. Azuka. They've done three of my plays. They're awesome folks. Awesome. Well, let's get into the discussion part. Well, tell listeners a little bit. Um, about what inspired you to get into this field in the first place, and especially playwriting? Um, How did you decide that was the route to go for you? So I actually began writing plays before I knew what plays were. (laughs) Um, I had a very smart teacher who was like, you're writing plays. Uh, But basically, (laughs) when I was in elementary and middle school, um, I went I lived in rural North Florida, so there was not a lot of theater around, no professional theater, but we would often have like actors come in and do scenes or do child-friendly shows like in our cafeteria at school, right? So that's how I got to know theater. And when I was in middle school, I started writing short stories that were only dialogue. Mm -hmm. And my teacher was like, that's not actually a short story. (laughs) That's, that's a play. You know all those things when those actors come in and like do things in the cafeteria on stage? <laughs> they act, that's actually written down and this is what it is. Um, so I've been lucky enough throughout my life to have some really amazing teachers. Um, I came up through the fringe route, um, staging my own works, staging my friends' works, helping dramaturg, uh, friends' new plays in exchange for them helping me with mine. And so it's, I've loved, I've been able to nurture it into a career. Um, but really I would do it anyway. It's just what I love to do. (laughs) Gotcha. That's fantastic. (laughs) And you said that you grew up in rural North Florida. How did you end up here in Philly? Yeah, I grew up right outside Tallahassee, which is primarily known as a university town because um, we have a million mm, yeah. years. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> and actually, after I went to Agnes Scott College in Atlanta on a writing scholarship, 
And uh, nice. then I got a scholarship to go to USC, University of Southern California in LA. And so I actually did a grad studies in film and television criticism. Mm. And, um, and I was spent a lot of my time in LA in my early 20s. And that's where I met my partner. And my partner actually got a job here, which is how we ended up moving back to this coast. Um, mm. So we been here a little over 10 years now. We really think of it as our home. We bought a house. Our kids go to public school here. We love it. So we're planning on staying. <laughs> Great. I love hearing how everybody came to Philly too. It's it's very interesting. Some people like have been here their whole lives and some people have like just moved here like me uh, like three or four years ago for college. Um, and everybody really easily like finds it as a home, which I think is great. Agreed. I, it's like the perfect size city because it's yeah. to have big city amenities like arts and great food and great restaurants, mm -hmm. but it's small enough so that I find it really manageable and way less expensive. Yeah, for sure. We exactly. <laughs> and going into uh, back into your experience with writing, especially now we're recording this during a pandemic, of course. Um, how do you find inspiration to keep writing either now during the pandemic or even pre-pandemic? Like, how do you keep finding things that you want to write about? I'm a annoyingly curious person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my partner and friends can verify that for you. Um, I've just always been very curious. And so I love reading. I love going to museums. I love talking to people. You know, my husband is like, oh, my God, you only had to get a gallon of milk. Why are you at the grocery store for an hour? <laughs> like, well, I'm just the cashier and you would not believe. Um, and so for me, writing is really just an extension of living and an extension of that curiosity because mm -hmm. through writing about things that I find interesting, uh, one, I'm forced to learn more about them, which mm -hmm. I love. Um, and two, it really helps me think through um, many things that I'm interested in. For example, Babel, which Passage Theater is about to put up and Theater mm -hmm. Exile put it up last year. Um, that play is all about reproductive technologies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's based on my experience, but also an experience of friends. And it was learning about those technologies and then writing the play. And then I started to realize the, the enormous place that it takes in our society and the changes it's so I learned, I learn a lot through my writing. Yeah. Kind of how I process the world. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever um, done anything performance-wise or it's always just been writing for you? Like, have oh, you ever considered another track? You do not want me to perform. <laughs> I had to perform in college. It was awful. I was mm, yeah. My mother came to see the performance and she met me out in the lobby. No flowers. <laughs> just looked at me and she was like, we are not doing this, are we? Oh my God. And I was like, no, I had to do it for credit so I could pass this stupid class. Mm -hmm. Like, yep. <laughs> excellent. Great. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm bad at it. Um, which is interesting because I like teaching, but I think teaching, at least the way that I teach, uh, mm -hmm. 
it's much more discussion-based and it's much more helping students figure out what they are thinking and, and teaching them through discussion. Um, and so being on stage is often just so one-sided. Yeah. It's yeah. not good at it. Um, <laughs> I've, I've done a little directing. I, I've done a couple of other things. As I said, I started off self-producing, so I mm-hmm. don't know how to produce and market. Yeah. But writing is really where I live. Nice. Yeah, it's interesting to hear a lot of the artists on this podcast are like, I mean, I, I mean, artists in general are always more than one thing. Um, and I think for a while talking to everyone, I'm like, oh, man, I could never act. I could never be on the creative side. Like I'm such a production or administrative person. So it's mm-hmm. good to also hear someone else that is not a performer. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I also think that it just depends on what satisfies you creatively. There yeah. are some people who like the appetite, the appetite um, for theater is very uh, long and wide and they want to do every single thing and that's what satisfies them creatively. And then there are some mm-hmm. of us who like our appetite is very deep. And so yeah. we go one thing and, and go way down. Yeah. Um, so I think they're both right. I just think it's different personalities. Yeah, for sure. That's a great way of putting it too. And going into um, some of those challenges of like drilling deep down into one thing, um, the challenges of being a playwright, what, what is really challenging, either just in the field of playwriting or being a female playwright? Um, what are those challenges and misconceptions and how do you overcome them in your work? Great question. Um, and a very big question. So I'm going to give oh, you yeah. a nice answer because I could talk about this for hours, but thank you for Sure. Of course. I think one of the big shifts that needs to happen and is starting to happen now, so it's an incredibly wonderful time to be a playwright. Um, one of the shifts that needs to happen is that there was this idea in the past that there was this one story and this is how you tell that story and everything else was a subgenre of that story. Mm-hmm. So for example, right, um, you take a um, wonderful play, Angels in America. Mm-hmm. Love that play, teach it all the time, right? And that's one specific lens on the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, there are lots of other plays that have been written that are very good on the AIDS crisis that have written by and are from the perspective of a woman or a non-binary person or, you know, a person of color. And often it was like, well, Tony Kushner's is the really the great one. And then everyone else is a sub subgenre. Mm, And I think that that's just because we're so much more comfortable with the white male lens that it feels like that point of view in stories is the right, quote unquote, right point of view or the point of view that makes the most sense. Mm, Yeah. That's just because that's how we're used to experiencing stories because of the culture that we live in. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's a wonderful Ted talk um, about, and I apologize, I forget her name, (laughs) but if you say Ted talk theater value of perspective, Mm-hmm. Uh, or she is a writer from Africa and she talks about because she grew up with a certain type of literature, she was surprised by how certain white people acted when she came to America. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's that thing. It's, it's that when you're immersed in one culture with one specific perspective, anything else feels not quite as organic. 
mm, were yeah. not as accessible. It absolutely is for the most, I mean, for the most part, again, we don't have time to go into like hours of nuance, but in- <laughs> it is accessible. You may have to work harder because it's a perspective you're not used to, but the story is just as well written. The characters are just as exciting and engaging. Yeah. You know, so I think that one of the things that's happening right now is that in theater and in our society as a whole, but you know, we're talking about theater, is that we're beginning to acknowledge all of these issues around perspective and cultural mm-hmm. perspective. Um there's a I'm, I know there's a big conversation right now in the acting community, especially uh with dialect coaches. Because there have been all of these casting directors who are like, I need you to send me people who act and speak black. Mm -hmm. I let coaches are like, there's not one black. Exactly. The you know the 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 casting directors are asking like their idea of black is like not well spoken from an urban environment, probably Mm -hmm. lower middle class or lower class economically. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, I know there was a big conversation in the acting community with the casting directors, acting teachers and dialect coaches about like why it's inappropriate to say, I want someone who's black. No, you need to say like who acts black. You need mm. to say, well, what do you want this person to actually act like? What is their background? Right. Yeah. It's, it's that the version of the acting community. And then if you look at directing and if you look at design, all communities within the larger theater community are having these conversations, which I think is mm-hmm. fantastic. And yeah. I think it's also about in the next iteration of these conversations, how do we have these conversations well with the audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that when work is shared, they can understand what we're trying to do and they can connect with that in a deeper way and they can confront some of their own internal biases towards one point of view or another. Yeah. Um, So I think it's a wonderful time to be a theater artist and especially a playwright. Yeah, that's great. Especially, yeah, I like how you mentioned the audience component of it too, right? Because if we just think about it internally like that's not enough sometimes I mean it's not enough anytime really we have to learn what it is like inside internally for us to spread that message externally or else that message is never going to get reached right agreed and we are primed to be leaders in this conversation in our culture because we are so good at communicating right we are so good at building empathy and idea and bridges between different types of people so i just think that we're really poised to do this incredibly well yeah for sure and those the issue about perspective too and other lenses like the whole point of this podcast too is like decentering that white cis male <laughs> lens that theater is typically associated with so i'm glad that you brought that up too because there are so many other perspectives that are not really regarded as either the main or the default in theater or even important sometimes in theater. And that definitely mm-hmm. needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have been very blessed and very lucky and found supporters, but even me who has had privilege in certain areas, mm-hmm. um, when I was writing my play, the arsonists, the ma- it's a play about a father and a daughter 
The daughter's the main character. The father's the supporting character. Mm-hmm. I heard umpteen number of times from producers, all happened to be white men. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. the father should be the main character because he had the most compelling story. <laughs> and I was like, dude, no, you think he has the most compelling story because you're his age group. You're yeah. in mortality like he is. You have similar characteristics. So that may have made him feel more mm-hmm. relevant to you. But actually, if you step back and looked at the greater dramaturgy of the piece, mm-hmm. it's the daughter that has the most to lose. Yeah. Just look at it from a craft perspective. It's very clear that she's the main character. Um, but even people who had produced my work before and liked my work mm-hmm. didn't get it on that play. And I found it really interesting um, and, and really a great way for me to start to understand how insidious um, Mm -hmm. certain biases are because I want to root them out, not only in other people, but also in myself. Like when have I, you know, and how can I make sure I don't do that again? And not perfect, but I do think that sometimes seeing it when someone's doing it to you, it's then easier to go back and say, Oh, now that I've seen it and it pisses me off. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I now see how I did it. And now I have to go yes. apologize to 200 people. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, never and try to never do it again. It's very, um, especially in a field where there is not as much opportunity as there should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and a field where uh, there are always going to be great artists who are ignored or left by the wayside or not chosen because they don't fit into X, Y, or Z box which is what mm. the producer needs to tick in order to get the show on stage. Yeah. Um, it's even more important to be aware of those, those biases, biases. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know the plural, but to be aware <laughs> of those and yourself mm-hmm. when you're making decisions. Yeah, exactly. Already there's not enough room for all the talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, yeah. Like as the future arts managers, like, taking that into account of, you know, having that top level view of like, okay, well, are my designers taking that into account? Or is my production crew taking that into account? Like, are the works that I'm choosing taking that into account? Like, us at the top level can really be that safeguard um, and make sure that that work is getting done, for sure. Absolutely. And anyone who says they can't find work that's not a white lens just Mm -hmm. trying yes (laughs) at this point from fringe festivals all the way up to tony awards and broadway like and everything in between there are slews of really talented artists working at every place in the american theater yeah um so really if you can't find it you're not trying go Mm -hmm. home and give the job to somebody else (laughs) yeah 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 and it's true it's like you said before about um like with the other lenses and the issues around perspective like if if that's the default and that's what you're constantly looking for like of course that's only what you're gonna find Mm -hmm. but there's so much more out there and you just have to maybe try a little bit harder but it's not like undiscoverable like it is there you just have to look a little bit harder for it absolutely and I think that 
with um, the new play exchange, which now anyone can mm-hmm. um, subscribe to online and search for yeah. plays and other performance works by certain criteria um, with so many playwrights now having uh, their own websites where you can go and download pieces of work or learn about them. Like it's so much easier to access than when I got into the business, you know, 15, 17 years ago and everything was by mail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I think people should have looked harder and tried harder, especially the white people in decision-making positions mm-hmm. but also like it was all by mail y'all yeah <laughs> it was definitely more accessible <laughs> of difficulty but now it's great i mean now if you yeah. google award-winning plays by black playwrights slews mm-hmm. of plays will pop up on google it's that easy which yeah is awesome. that's great oh my god at least yeah i hope this is giving people ideas too of like if you want to write a play it's like okay, or produce a play, like, okay, I know where to look for things now. So this is great information too. Oh, yes. Newplayexchange.org. 10 bucks a year, 12 bucks a year, and you get access to thousands of plays. It's awesome. Amazing. And if you're in school, I know that um, Bloomsbury and a couple of other online library services that contract with colleges have also started putting full-length plays. Mm -hmm. Or just go to your college or university library and say, which are the databases that have added full-length plays? And there should be Mm -hmm. a of them now, which is so exciting because so many of these plays were so hard to find Mm -hmm. years ago. And now you can get them within minutes. Nice. Oh, that's great. Listeners, please take note. This is great information. (laughs) And getting into, too, about, you talked a little bit about this, the perspective, um, but how have your works, um, the, all the projects and works, how have they changed your perspective on issues um, over time, like issues of gender and identity and personhood um, in either our industry or just how has that evolved in your work over time? Lovely question. <laughs> um, for me, I... I've started to understand that there's a lot more to learn about life than you can learn from books. Mm. And I love books. I was a nerd growing up, you know, <laughs> shocker. Me too. Know, yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I start, when I started out writing and writing about people who were different than me and situations I'd never experienced, I did a lot of research in books. Um, but now Oh, just over the past six, seven years, as I've evolved as a writer and as a person, I've realized that you can't just research in books. Like I need to hire a dramaturg who is familiar with that situation. I need to do interviews with people and take them out to coffee and buy them coffee to see if I can ask them questions for, you know, 30 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. I, it's worth investing in consultants from certain communities. For example, when we did, uh, my play click, which simpatico made here and then went to the vortex in Austin and all around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, yes, we're going to pay extra to have, we had three different trans dramaturgs look at it from three different generations. Mm, nice. Because yeah. It was a generational piece and we wanted to make sure that even though we'd done our research and done our interviews 
and we had trans people in the cast, wanted to make sure that we were representing a certain parts of history and the trans experience as well as we could. Mm, yeah, for uh, sure. And I feel like that all shows up in the work, whether it's literally in text or simply in how actors and directors and designers approach choices. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. always, always worth it. And so I know that we are often cash strapped in theater, but I would love to see a better understanding that those type of resources, whether it be interviews, guest speakers coming into rehearsal, investing more in a dramaturg, that mm. those actually deepen the experience for the artists and therefore translate to a deeper experience for the audience, even though you can't yeah. really see it on stage, right? It's not the smoke yeah. machine designer wanted. So I think mm-hmm. that along with this evolution and thinking about how we select plays and how we look through the lens that different plays, we also need to be thinking about those invisible but invaluable things mm-hmm. that we have not been doing and yeah. we need to find money to put towards making sure happen for every production. Yeah, that's great. And that actually goes into my next question too of like um in Philly theater specifically, what can we be doing better? Um, and even what, what are we doing good? Um, or what are we doing well? Um, but yeah, what do you think Philly theater can be doing better? Is it that, um, consultant aspect and investing more, or is that more of a widespread theater industry thing that needs to change? Oh, it's definitely widespread, but we could absolutely engage in it here in Philly as well. Mm, I can tell you from working around the country that it is widespread. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, For sure. Um, I would say right now, while I think that's a wonderful question, I'm going to answer, I don't know specifically about Philly overall right now, because we Mm -hmm. are in such a moment of transition, which I think is good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's an evolution for us. I think the realities that have come out of, um, you know, discussions about Black Philly theater artists, about um, other theater artists of color in Philly, um, about uh, gender and representations of identity on stage, about sexual harassment, these kinds of things mm-hmm. um, that I think it seems like, and my fingers are crossed because we have mm-hmm. awesome artists and awesome leaders in this community that all of that kind of um, conversation and debate and sometimes outright fighting about all of that over the past year, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. the lockdown with COVID, that people are looking like, okay, I can't produce a show, but I can look at how my systems work in my theater. Mm, and yeah. I can evolve those systems so that when we do open back up, I'm doing a better job and my company is doing a better job. So like, I know that places like Simpatico and Philadelphia theater company and Shakespeare and Clark park and Azuka, like they have all engaged outside people to help them get a better look at their systems and reimagine all of them. Um, I'm sure other theater companies are too. Um, I'm just not as familiar with those with exactly what they're doing. Playpen is reimagining itself right now. So what I'm hoping is that although it has absolutely been difficult during Mm -hmm. COVID, 
for COVID and many other reasons. I think that difficulty is good. And sometimes the only way to grow is to go through the birthing process yeah. <laughs> with new ideas and confronting your challenges um, and starting with the new day. So I'm really especially excited for the 21-22 season when hopefully we'll yeah. be able to back and see what that looks like. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting comparing the next season versus what we left off with. Yeah, and using this time, like you said, as like, don't just use it as, I mean, use it as a break, but use it to take a deeper dive into how your systems are working and what you can be doing better for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that also leads into my other question about um, how can, so this podcast is for young, um, young or next generation arts leaders and mostly arts managers. So what can those um, who want to be managers or those in admin positions, um, how can they better support playwrights like you or artists in general? What would you like to see better coming from those positions? Ooh, great question. (laughs) What I wish that many of the arts managers I've worked with would do, and I think that overall they do an excellent job. It is a hard, hard job. But one of the things I wish they would do is stay in touch with pop culture. Mm. And I'm not saying you have to go out and spend all your money on Beyonce tickets. Although I would say that's a really great way to spend all your money. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But stay connected with the person on the street, right? Is the old phrase. Um, Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I think hurts playwrights and also frankly hurts the popularity of theater is that um, theater companies and their choice of artistic projects are not moving with the speed of pop culture. Mm, And sometimes that can be great, right? Sometimes because we are an art form that is not moving at that speed all the time, it means we have a chance to reflect and dive into the nuance of questions. And I love that. Let's keep that. Yeah. (laughs) But it also means that I have seen plays rejected by very smart artistic directors and managers for things like, there are a bunch of Pikachu references. Is anyone going to know what that means? I don't. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. (laughs) I literally, I worked with a very elderly artistic director who was a female, white female, and she's like, I just don't. And it was a show about, about Motown. She's like, I just don't think people are going to be familiar enough with these sounds. I'm like, it's Motown. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. You can listen to new music mm-hmm. since, you know, 1954. And what she was listening to was very different. So mm. just, I think that we need to stay more connected to pop culture and be less afraid. Like there, there's this idea of like the great American play, fuck the great American play. Like, <laughs> if, you write it, if you happen to write it, kudos, right? Mm-hmm. Angels in America, great American play. Bingo Tiger in the Baghdad Zoo, great American play. Love them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. But if we want to actually be a part of our broader communities, then we also need to be aware of what's important to them. Mm-hmm. What yeah. references they have. Yeah. Um, and what stories they want told, even if the story is not being told perfectly, 
Mm-hmm. Even if you're a theater that only does well-made plays, and maybe a play is only a half well-made play, but is also really exciting talking about things happening today. Mm-hmm. Put the pl- that play up. Like, we just are too slow. And I don't know if it's a hierarchy thing or an elitism thing or because foundations don't want to fund it. I Honestly, I'm not. I think it's probably a mix of a lot of different reasons. Yeah. But we need to be better at staying connected to popular culture, the person on the street, and what it, they actually care about today. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great advice, too. And I feel like that's usually what they tell, like, at least in my program or um, what I found, like, people like me going into the industry, but still in, in school and education, at least. I feel like that's very targeted for marketing. It's always, like, marketing, PR, know your audience, like, know, keep up to date. But it's like, no, that can transcend. It should transcend, like you said, like, to all admin positions, because then that dictates what play gets chosen to be produced and presented and like what your audience actually sees. It's not just all, what does your audience care about on social media? (laughs) Like that's not just keeping up. There's so many other levels to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, it's amazing. I have seen really beautiful productions of plays whose topics and conversations are just past their expiration date Mm, um, in terms of popular culture. And Theaters put up these shows, they put 80,000, 100,000, half a million dollars into them, and then they don't understand why anyone doesn't come. Mm, And I'm like, because this is the conversation you have with the cranky old aunt who won't turn off (laughs) the TV and look at the news at Thanksgiving dinner. Like, no one wants to have that conversation. Why is someone going to pay to come into the theater and have that conversation? Mm, yeah. And that doesn't mean you can't explore historical topics. It doesn't like you can still explore all of these wonderful things, but keeping in mind what is happening today. Mm, yeah, for sure. That also goes into like a whole other conversation of like, um, of getting the newer audiences engaged too, right? Of like getting younger audience members because theater's typically older. Um, yeah, that's a whole other thing, well, too. Right, absolutely. Well, I, I like to say regional theater audiences that have regional theaters that have mm-hmm. buildings, their audiences tend to be older and tend to be white. Yes, yeah. But yeah. if you go to Shakespeare and Clark Park, if you go to Power Street Productions, if you go to Theater in the X, hundreds and hundreds of people from across racial, economic identity spectrums come out to those shows and yet many of those shows are treated as subpar mm, that's great ridiculous right because those are the shows that are actually mm, the people in exactly the so when regional theaters most of which have buildings are in free fall financially and they're like why don't anyone come to our shows mm-hmm. it's like well people look <laughs> you have to program something that's meaningful to more than just you and your board if you and mm-hmm, your board have exactly. a then your board members can write checks and underwrite all of your rent and expenses. But mm-hmm. if you actually want to engage with other people, that means giving as well as taking. Mm, that yes. means being open to other ideas as well as wanting them to be open to yours. So sometimes it's like, yes, Regional theater often with buildings is failing. And some of it is just because their decision makers are really selfish and narcissistic. Mm-hmm. 
and refuse to see that community conversation goes both way and has value. Mm -hmm. So it's like sometimes I wonder with those artistic leaders, um, especially because they stay so long. Mm, Yes. Right. They stay so long because healthcare is better and they can't afford to retire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that like we that's another conversation that we haven't had yet as much, but we need to have. I think not just in Philly, but I've seen this especially nationally. Is like mm. at what point do you say your leadership is no longer relevant? Yeah, yeah. Either educate yourself and become more relevant, or mm-hmm. need to find a way to retire. You know. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. See, you're gonna get me in so much trouble. <laughs> I love it. It's it's great to know. It's oh my god. Yeah, that's a lot of the conversation that we talk about in EAM too. Like mm. what is this because a lot of it too is like going back to um being like a younger artist or a younger manager like how do we get into the field if it's still being held so tightly by these artistic directors that are not um are not relevant or are not making those decisions. Um, yeah, it's a huge conversation (laughs) for sure. I'm sure. And I think that, I think some of it is the fault of the older folks who won't retire, Mm -hmm. but I also feel sorry for them, right? We're talking about, these are very nuanced conversations because I've actually known a couple of older folks who would retire, but because theater does not have, theaters do not usually offer 401ks, they don't offer retirement, they can't afford to. Yeah, exactly. Right. So how do we also in this kind of re-envisioning of our structures post COVID, how do we take care of the elder members of our community so that they can make mm-hmm. the choices they need to make for themselves and their health? Yeah. To have a better life. Right. Like, so yeah. I think that's also a part of kind of that bigger conversation and the reimagining the structure. Like, are you providing 401k benefits? to your Mm, image yeah 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 that's such a bigger conversation that I hope we get to soon too and like yes yeah and I mean and going back to like the audience too like it it affects everyone right like Mm -hmm. and if you're a young artist getting into this like even if you don't care about your 401k now (laughs) you're going to later so it still affects you even if you're a young artist yeah Well, absolutely. And like, how do you, um, as a young artist, like I've told many students, like put away $10 a month in a savings account now, Mm -hmm. $10 a month, two, two fancy coffees, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Put it. And you would not believe if you just keep doing that and don't touch that savings. Mm -hmm. Then when you start to make money, maybe you put 15 or $20 away a month. And then yeah. when you get good jobs, you put a hundred or two hundred dollars away a month. And then when you're not working, you know, maybe you don't put any in, or maybe you just go back to ten. But don't mm-hmm. touch it. I do know some really fiscally savvy artists who are now my age, which is forty, who have really nice savings accounts, and they're going to be able to retire at fifty-five, sixty. But it's just, yeah. I mean, it feels like 
it feels like so little, but actually, if you add it all up over the years, it makes a huge impact. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, pl- so that's something that your students can start thinking about. It's like that old Pete mm-hmm. Seeger song, inch by inch, row by row, garden, <laughs> garden grown, right? Yes. Retirement, just inch by inch. Yeah. And that's exactly. amazing to see. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think, yeah, we, a lot of what we do is like in the moment, but it, again, it's like, think long-term, <laughs> think about this as a career. Um, and even if you just do that little bit, um, it'll set you up so much better later on. And you have to think about that later on for sure. Absolutely. And I think that we haven't in this industry for so long because mm-hmm. it's an industry that's run on um, middle class, upper middle class and upper class people who are either yeah. married to someone who can pay for their lifestyle or mm. a trust fund, right? And mm-hmm. one of the challenges with more fully integrating our theater community and our art form is economic. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we can't, if we truly want, if our values are that we want a more integrated art form, integrated in a lot of different ways, some of which we've touched mm-hmm. on today. Yeah. If we want that, then we have to make it fiscally viable for the poorest artist to, to thrive as well as the richest artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means, again, this goes back to structure, right? There yeah. And there are some places in New York and other cities with more wealth doing this, which is great, but I wish it could happen mm-hmm. elsewhere, mm-hmm. where they're starting to bring on artists for a year. So you're guaranteed something for a longer mm-hmm. amount time you're on salary um but if we really want to integrate then then being honest about the economic portion Mm -hmm. of of the industry is just as important as being honest about everything else I think that's so important like all those points about the systems and the integration um and I look forward to what this industry does in the future for sure um Yeah, and we'll be part of it. So we'll see what happens. Well, thank um, God we had you all coming up behind us. You're going to make it up. I'm just, I'm just planning on kicking back and drinking <laughs> and watching you guys make it better. We'll get to work. Yeah. <laughs> and as we wrap up here, like what um, for those people that will probably be doing the work, the emerging arts leaders, what advice do you have for them? Or what do you want them to know about this industry? Is there any um, parting words that you have for them? Yes, it's a calling. It's a calling. And like other callings, there are going to be ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Never be ashamed to take other work. Never be ashamed to take a pause and take care of yourself mentally. Never Mm -hmm. be afraid to shift. Yeah. Because it really is a calling, but it's a very demanding calling. And we have to realize that. Over the years, I've been a literary manager. I've been a dramaturg. I've been a playwright. Um, COVID hit. Productions weren't happening. I wrote a book about playwriting with writing exercises that'll be produced later in the year. But like the most of us who succeed in terms of making the money in theater and having like career careers Mm -hmm. are constantly... Um, aware that this is our calling, but that we're going to have to shift and be flexible over the years to survive. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Some good advice for our listeners that I know they'll very much appreciate too, especially those like me that are graduating into this. It's very yeah. necessary. Yeah. You just, you just keep moving. You just keep shifting. Yeah. Just keep moving. trying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you did mention um, your book that's coming up. What else do you have um, that you're working on right now or coming up that folks can um, look forward to? Sure. So my book will be out this summer. It's called Playwriting with Purpose, a nice. guide and workbook for new playwrights by Rutledge. Um, so they should have to pre-order link up soon and then they'll be in bookstores this summer. Hopefully by the time we go back to bookstores. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, working with Passage Theater in Trenton right now on a reading of my play Babel, that they're going to do a production of it hopefully next year when we open back up and you'll be able to see Babel also at the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Um, and for those folks in the D.C. area, I'm world premiering a new play at the Kennedy Center this fall called Wind in the Door. So nice. if you get out that way, check it out. Awesome. Um, great. Well, I will put the link to your website, too, so that everyone can follow along um, if they have any questions, too. So that will all be in the bio of this episode. And as always, on the Instagram page at Pull Back the Curtain Pod for everyone listening. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jackie. Thank you for coming on the show, um, talking about all your work um, and where you want the community to go, and also for being so active in this community. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And thanks for doing this. It's been a blast, and I'm sure it'll help your colleagues. Of course. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening and supporting Pull Back the Curtain, a Philly theater podcast. If you would like to support the artists involved with this podcast, please donate to the GoFundMe linked in the description of this episode. Thank you to our top-level donors, Katrina Chavez, Stephanie Smith, Brandon Wiles, and my parents, Joe and Doreen Catalona. A special shout-out this week goes to Jamie Hafner and Melissa Nesta. Thank you so much for supporting.